Good morning. Thank you. So for our introduction today, before we kind of get into just a small recap, is I want to read a passage for us from Leviticus. In chapter 19, starting in verse 9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not keep your field you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in justice shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Last week we continued in our discussion with James where we looked at being not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Pastor Keith showed us that, uh, based on James, that a hearer and a doer is like a man who looks in the mirror and then after looking at himself intently, as soon as he walks away, he, he forgets what he, what he just looked at. He, he forgets his position. He forgets who he is. And I think what, when we see that happening in real life, it, it looks hypocritical. It looks foolish. But even at a more dangerous level, what it really does is it violates God's law. And so moving on from, uh, or continuing, I should say, with being doers of the word and not merely hearers, James is going to move into a, a case study in this next passage. Really, what we have is an example of discrimination showing how it violates the Word of God. And so what James shows us is here's an example of not doing the Word, of possibly knowing what needs to be done, of knowing the law, of knowing the teaching, but hearing it and not doing it. Christians, when we practice discrimination, we are breaking the law of God. And before we get into our passage, I want to say a word of encouragement, which is, you know, I was just talking to Pastor Keith this morning, I love the way that our church is set up. I love the diversity of our church. We have ethnic diversity. We have 
age diversity. I feel like I'm one of the younger ones in the church, and yet my closest friends are quite a bit older. But, but that doesn't bother me. Like, I don't look at, I don't look at me like, oh, I'm, there's so much. No. There's just all this diversity in our, in our little body here of just, you know, I, I mean, we're a small church, and yet I love how diverse we are. And I love that we are a church that is built on not discriminating against one another. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from this passage. Absolutely we can, and we will. And it doesn't mean that we can't fall into traps as well of holding bitterness in our heart, of holding discrimination against others. And when we do that, it grieves our Lord because it's, it's, it's a violation of how he has designed the church to be, of how he's designed his people to interact with each other. And so, I love that Ed started by praying to King Jesus because what our main focus is this morning is that discrimination violates the law of our king. And what it reveals is that our identification is more with the world than our allegiance with Christ our king. So as true followers of Christ, we are to make sound judgments in loving others, knowing that we will be judged by God, the righteous judge. And let me just say this at the outset here. The Lord laid this on my heart this morning. As we go through this passage, I want us to remember that we too will have a day in court. And we will be standing before a judge who is impartial. We will be standing in front of a judge who knows the depths of our heart every inclination, every thought. And so, I just want to say that up front to maybe help us understand this passage as we go through it, because I think there might be some uh, new things here. Um, But let's start by reading our passage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll come up here. James... 1 through 13. My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while practicing favoritism. For if a man enters into your synagogue with a gold ring on his finger and luxurious clothing, yet a poor man enters in filthy clothing, and you on the one who is luxurious clothing and say, You, yet to the poor, stand there or sit on my footstool. Have you not made distinctions? and become judges through wicked reasoning? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen the poor, uh, the poor in the world to be rich in faithfulness and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you all dishonor the poor. Are the rich not your oppressors? Do they not drag you into court? Are they not blaspheming the honorable name called over you? If indeed you fulfill the law of the king according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted under the law as a transgressor. Whoever observes the whole law but stumbles in one place becomes accountable for all of it. For where it says, do not commit adultery, it also says, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but yet you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. 
Thus, speak and act, judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for those who do not practice mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray in our time this morning together that we would understand what you are saying in this passage through the Apostle James, that you would speak to our hearts. I am encouraged by the diversity of our church. I am encouraged by the fact that I know many in here do not feel discriminated against, Lord. But I also know that your word does not return void. That there are things that we can learn that may be blind spots in our lives that we don't recognize of ways that we practice discrimination. And I pray, God, that we would understand that this kind of partiality, it violates your law and it has no place in the life of a Christian. And so I pray, God, that we would grow by your word, that it would be your spirit that molds our hearts into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be hearers of this word and doers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first, James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory while practicing favoritism. So this is an imperative. James is adamant. Do not do this. Unbecoming of a Christian. The two cannot go hand in hand. You cannot be claiming that Jesus is King and Lord of your life on the one hand and trying to hold in the other hand a lifestyle of discrimination and partiality and favoritism. They do not go together. But why would James make this claim? Well, the first reason is because God himself does not practice discrimination. Here are some passages, Romans 2, 6 through 11. For he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who, by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6, 9, And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Colossians 3, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve Christ, for the wrongdoers will be paid back for whatever and there is no partiality. So God does not practice partiality. God does not discriminate. God has a scale. And God has set that scale in stone. God has his law. And he will judge everyone according to that law. And this is actually going to be James' point at the end of our passage this morning. 
And Paul shows us in these passages that God is equally concerned with the character of every man and woman's heart. He's concerned with the character of the rich and the poor, the slave and the master, the Jew and the Gentile, yes, even parents and their children. And God will show no partiality. He will show no favoritism. Wrongdoing will be punished. Honoring the Lord will be rewarded. So God does not practice discrimination, but in his law, he prohibits partiality and discrimination. Leviticus 19.15, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in justice shall you judge your neighbor. And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brother and Judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be in, uh, intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. That's Deuteronomy 16. And then even in Proverbs, it says, There also are sayings of the wise, partiality and judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, You are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and good blessing will come upon them. James's whole argument this morning is actually based on how Christ's view of discrimination is already expressed back in his holy law. Christ has already talked about discrimination, and now James is building on what Christ has taught. So when Christ says, when the, the question is asked, what are the two greatest commandments? And Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, He's referencing a specific passage. And he's talking about what the law has already addressed that goes into loving your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, do not show partiality. Do not discriminate. And it's important to understand this because um, James makes this law, the law of our king, foundational for how we are to speak and act as followers of Christ. But before we go any further, we have to look at a bit of historical context of what is happening in this case study that James puts before us. I, I talked to Jeff yesterday, and one of the things we talked about, I said that it'd be nice if I could just come up here and just say, don't discriminate. Got it. Simple enough. But I said one of the challenges is that there is historical context behind a passage that is really meant to illuminate the implications and the application of what we should take from what James is saying here. So he says, For a man enters into your synagogue with a gold ring on his finger in luxurious clothing. Right? Yet a poor man enters in filthy clothing, and, and what, is the, what do they do? They show favoritism on the rich man. They say, sit here with me, and they tell the poor man, you stand over there, or you can sit at my footstool. And he says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges through wicked reasoning? 
Now, many people, when they read this, they think, they're thinking in terms of a worship service. And here are two men, a rich man and a poor man, that have come to visit the worship service. And people are enamored with the rich man. And they tell him, you know, come to the front, come sit here. You know, maybe it's like a politician. who comes sit here, you get to, everyone gets to see you. And, um, but the historical context actually points to something a bit different. See, rather than describing strangers coming into a meeting for worship, the example and the wording that James uses specifically describes two men who are coming before an assembly for judgment. See, traditionally, in a court hearing in Jewish culture, you would assemble in the synagogue. And this is the focus of the context of James, which is why he's speaking about wicked judgments, referencing the law, and then later on talking about these rich men oppressing you where? In court. And so what this would look like is traditionally you would have a judge, right? Probably an elder would come and he would sit down and you would have both litigants, you would have the people who are bringing their uh, their issues before the judge. And what traditionally they're supposed to do is the judge would sit and the two men would stand before the judge and each would have an opportunity to speak, to make their defense, to make their uh, appeal, to plead their case. But the issue taking place that James is pointing out here is when you would have a judge that will allow one person to sit and another to stand or sit at the footstool. Now what this would do is give prime of place to the one who the judge allowed to sit. It would communicate something. It was putting this person in a position of authority over the litigant who was forced to stand before the judge. So in essence, what would happen is the rich man would be taken by the judge who would come and sit next to him and what was basically being communicated is I've already made my choice as to who is correct and who is not. And now the reason this is interesting too is because traditionally um, they didn't want this to happen. And so uh, it was also dictated that both men were supposed to dress in similar clothing so that partiality wouldn't happen sight on scene. And so it's interesting that James brings up the lavish clothing of the rich man and the shabby clothing of the poor man. The point was the judge would not be able to do such a wicked thing because the men would be presented as equal. And the footstool comment, to give some context behind that, is used by James to exaggerate the poor treatment and partiality of the poor man that is sitting under the feet or by the footstool of the judge, which is indicating a humility and disrespect. In fact, it was the reason why it was understood this way is because God's footstool was a place for his enemies who were facing judgment. And so the judge was saying, either you stand while the rich man sits, or you have the opportunity to sit under the footstool in humiliation. So this is the understanding of why James uses synagogue with judges in this passage. It would indicate that there's disputes in the religious community that needed to be addressed, and you would have partiality in addressing these disputes, where one party 
was being treated unfairly, where favoritism and discrimination was taking place. Now, we see this happening in the synagogue, in places like when Peter and James and Acts are brought before the synagogue to make an appeal and they're told to stop spreading the gospel and they say, we must obey God rather than men. This also takes place with Stephen. He is brought before the synagogue, the court that takes place in the synagogue, and he is martyred for the faith there. So the reality is, these men are probably not strangers to the community. It's not just simply about desiring rich people in the church instead of poor people. It's actually a lot worse than that. So most commentators believe that what James is doing here is giving an extreme example for the purpose of what James is going to continue with his argument. And it's not surprising to see that in some sense this is taking place because in chapter 5, James is going to bring up the fact that the rich are not paying their day laborers, which is also a violation of Leviticus 19. So, that is a little bit of our historical context. And what this conveys is a violation of God's law. That's why I started with the Leviticus 19 passage, where um, God specifically says, do not show partiality where? In judging, in court. So, then James continues, and he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of the world, should say of, the poor of the world to be rich in faithfulness and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you all dishonor the poor. Are the your oppressors? And do they not drag you are they not the honorable name called over you? So if we look closely at that, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faithfulness and heirs of the kingdom? That probably, some of us may recognize that from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, what James has done is he has used this example of people in the church making these false judgments, these, these favor, practicing favoritism, practicing partiality, and he uses that now to actually move into the spiritual example of the rich oppressing the poor. And what's interesting is we as Christians should recognize that in order to be a Christian, you have to be poor. You have to be poor in spirit. God has chosen the poor in spirit, you could say that James is saying, to be rich in faithfulness, to be heirs to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is promised to those who are poor in spirit. And that's recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt. 
We bring nothing to God. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that none of us are righteous. Jesus says in Mark 8, or sorry, Mark 10, 8, when someone says, good teacher, and he says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. Now, Jesus isn't saying that he's not good, but he's questioning the, um, the, the questioner's idea of goodness. What is goodness? How do we define goodness? Goodness is not graded on a scale. Goodness belongs to God and God alone. And Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that we have nothing to offer God. In fact, apart from God, the only thing we have to offer at our best is unclean rags. Brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that if we are followers of Christ, if we are going to be heirs of the kingdom of God, we are the poor ones. We are bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. We have to always remember that it is God who has given us our divine name only because we are poor and desperate. Because it's the poor and the desperate, these are the ones who cry out to God because they know that they have nothing in themselves to offer. The spiritually rich, these are the ones who think that they're pretty good people. They don't recognize their depravity. They don't recognize their need. They've become self-righteous. And so while the poor inherit the kingdom of God, the rich inherit his wrath. So, it's interesting that as James brings this up, that he has to point out this kind of hypocrisy that's taking place within the church when it's Christians of all people who should be identifying with the poor and not the greedy. See, the problem is Christians who practice discrimination really have forgotten where they came from. It makes me think of, like, movie stars and athletes. You know, sometimes, not all of them, but for a lot of them, like, the more famous they get, the more disconnected they kind of become from reality. Fame gets to their head. They don't know how to tip anymore. And then, then on top of that... (laughs) This is my favorite. Then they have the audacity to get on little clips on commercials and stuff and then tell people how to live. Tell people how to spend their money. Tell people the difference between right and wrong. Tell people who to vote for. Tell people what justice is. And it's laughable. In fact, my favorite one was during the whole COVID crisis when you had a lot of celebrities going, solidarity, stay home, don't go outside, we're in this together. And their pool's in the background, and, you know, their maid accidentally walks by. Sorry, oops. It's laughable, but it's sad. But this is how Christians look to God when they discriminate. When we show partiality, this is, that's how we look. 
God says, Do you, have you forgotten where you've come from? Have you checked out of reality? Have you forgotten from what I saved you from when you had nothing to offer? And then James says, the, the rich, they, they oppress you and they drag you into court. And now they see the spiritual understanding start to, to play out. You are the poor. You are the poor in spirit. And the self-righteous, they oppress and they drag into court. The self-righteous world and the, the self-righteous religious love to dictate what Christianity should look like and how it should be practiced. They will happily tell you what love is, what holiness is, what goodness means, what kindness is, what justice should look like. And they will dictate to you when, where, and how you are allowed to share the gospel. They will tell you when it's too offensive and not practical enough. They will gladly inform you on what it looks like to love your neighbor. And even many professing religious Christians will gladly tell you just how much of the world you are allowed to mix in with your following of Christ. And when Christians refuse to listen, the self-righteous, the, the, the rich in this case, respond with anger and depression. And the, and the reason why I can say this, by the way, is because this is what Jesus says. In Matthew 10, 17-23, they will drag you into the synagogues and we see it happen in the early church where believers are dragged into court for following after Christ, for not submitting to the world. Even today, even now, the world got upset when churches decided to reopen. And even worse, even worse, were Christians who decided to take the opportunity to scoff and mock the churches and the pastors who decided to open. If you want to see the most toxic and vile display of Christianity, just log into Twitter. A lot of you probably don't even have it. Like cacti, I know. Yes. In fact, you could say that places like Twitter and Facebook are becoming the new religious courts, the new synagogues where cases are decided by the masses. And it's the tweeting and the Facebook posting that will decide whether or not someone is innocent or guilty. Lastly, James says, If indeed you fulfill the law of the king according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted under the law as transgressors. So, James is not being sarcastic here. If you are living in according to the scripture, if you are loving your neighbor as yourself, this is good. You do well. There's nothing wrong with encouraging when someone is, a, is living according to the gospel. But, 
If you show partiality, you are committing sin, and, and you're convicted under the law of transgressors. See, the law of the king is still the law of God. The specification of this law still stand. Matthew 5 tells us that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that not even the smallest portion of the law will perish. See, God's law is not void, it's not impractical, it's not meant to be ignored. In fact, the majority of the New Testament is quotations from the Old Testament, a lot of which being the law. And the reason why that's important for us today is because what James is saying here is lawbreakers will still be punished for breaking the law. God's standard of judgment has not and will not change. God is still concerned about his law. And that shouldn't be surprising because he wrote it. He spoke it. This is why Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 5 that God's standard is even higher than the standard of the Pharisees because God looks at the heart. And so James, in, the, in our last couple of verses here, he, he uses the same commandments that Jesus uses to show the heart. He uses murder and adultery. So God's law is not made up of many little commandments. It's a singular expression of his will and character, which is why James can say, if you have not committed adultery, but you've murdered, you are guilty still of the whole law. Why? Because there are no minor laws. There are no misdemeanors. If you've broken one, you've broken them all. And the law of God does not discriminate either. We have all been weighed and measured, and we have all been found wanting. So God looks at the heart, and uh, this is what I want to address with the discrimination, because I think if we take a picture and we say, man, I, I mean, I just, I don't really have, <laughs> I, I don't really participate in court very much, you know, so I don't really participate in discriminating as a judge, or maybe even in the church, I don't discriminate by, you know, only going to the good-looking people or the wealthy people. Here's what we have to recognize. The way that James looks at the rich and the poor in this passage is not just outward appearance. What he's looking at is the poor being poor in spirit and the rich being the greedy and the self-righteous. And that's the distinction that James is making. So if God looks at the heart, if you've become a self-righteous and wicked judge in your heart, it will come out in ways like discrimination and partiality and favoritism. See, to hate for Jesus is to murder. To lust with the eyes to Jesus is to commit adultery in your heart. To be a self-righteous judge in your heart is to discriminate in God's eyes. And all of these make us lawbreakers. So what does this look like then? What, is, what does this look like for discrimination? Well, it starts with a self-righteous attitude. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And most self-righteous people don't think they are. 
Most people who think too highly of themselves and they ought to don't think they think too highly of themselves. They think they think of themselves just right. But this is how it's revealed in the heart, in the mind. Judging people according to worldly standards, judging them according to how they look. Are you overly concerned with how you look? Are you all about status and image? It may not play out to the person that you're talking to, but don't forget, God's looking at the heart. God sees what you value. Or do you not take care of your appearance at all? Always having a problem when you see people with nicer things than you. That's partiality. How about according to their past? Always bringing up past wrongs. Always thinking about another person's past wrongs whenever that person is brought up. Comparing your sin to their sin. Saying, well, I've done some bad things. Well, I wouldn't do that. Identifying new creations by their old selves. That's self-righteousness. How about always talking about the wrongs of the world without ever really doing much about it? That's pretty self-righteous. Acting as though others need to be corrected for their sins while you either hide yours or don't see them as equally breaking God's laws. Gossiping about what people in the church have been struggling with or are doing wrong. Focusing more on the errors of others rather than your own. Now, there are probably some in here thinking, well, thankfully I don't do that. And actually, that means you probably do. And it's a blind spot. In fact, you probably do it a lot. And what you probably thought wasn't just, thankfully I don't do that. It was probably more along the lines of, thankfully I don't do that, but I can tell you who does. And I hope they're listening. Well, I hope you're listening. Because we are all in danger of this, even if we deny it. See, we may not practice discrimination in the way that the world looks at discrimination because that's behavior-based. And that can play out, absolutely. And it's tragic when it does. But we have to recognize that discrimination and partiality starts with a self-righteous heart that thinks more highly of him or herself than he or she ought to. And it's no longer poor in spirit. But in fact, you've become rich. And it's the rich that incur God's wrath. God sees our heart. He knows exactly what's going on. And so lastly, the law of the king is the law of liberty, and you will be judged by it. I will be judged by it. But why does James call it the law of liberty here? I'm going to move through this last point pretty quickly. But this law of the king, he then calls the law of liberty. Well, I believe it's because the commands of Christ are not burdensome unless you're trying to use them to show your righteousness. 
The law of God is, is, is beautiful and freeing and refreshing to the soul when it's used and understood correctly. That's why David, the psalmist, can say, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and right together, and more to be desired than even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. How often do we hear that when we talk about the law? But this is why James says the law of the king is the law of liberty. It's not the law of liberty when you're trying to, to keep it in order to gain a righteous standing before God. It's the law of liberty because the commands of Christ, the word of God, is not a burden to those who love him. It's refreshing to the soul. How refreshing is it that when Jesus Christ says, love your neighbor as yourself, it already tells you in the Word of God, this is how you love your neighbor. You don't have to go try to figure it out. I've told you already how to do it. It's refreshing. It's relieving. So our allegiance to Christ, we must obey His commands. Love God, love neighbor. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then James ends by saying, thus speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy for those who do not practice mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So here's the plea. We as Christians, we who have been saved, we who recognize that we are spiritually poor, we have to speak and act as if that were true. If our allegiance is to God, then we have to obey Him. We have to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we have to be doers of the Word in such a way that we showcase our love for neighbor. So this does not mean that mercy cancels out God's judgment, and it does not mean that showing mercy or doing good things is going to earn God's mercy. What it does is it indicates that you've already received it. When you follow the commands of the Lord out of love, it indicates that you are a new creation, that God has pulled you out of the darkness and into the light. But someone who practices partiality and discrimination, even in their heart, with that self-righteous attitude, it indicates that they show judgment without mercy. They are loveless. They have not been merciful, and therefore they will not receive mercy for their transgressions. And yes, while it can happen outwardly, the bigger danger is when it happens in the heart. So our attitude of loving our neighbor and remembering that we are poor in spirit is evidence of Christ in us. And so if that is you this morning, then we have the responsibility to speak and act in accordance 
with what God says. And if we don't, or are unwilling to, then we have to be ready when we stand before the Lord that he might say, you weren't poor in spirit, and I'll put you with the rich. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now as as we go into communion that before we come up and partake of this, that we would... um, that we would be poor in spirit, God, that we would recognize where we came from, those of us who are saved. That we had nothing to offer you. That salvation was a gift from you. That all glory and honor belongs to you, Lord. I pray that there would be conviction in our hearts that whenever self-righteousness starts to creep in, that we would recognize it for the filth that it is, Lord. God, I pray as we come up for communion that we would proclaim what has taken place on the cross, God. That our Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, giving us new life. A new life where we will not find your law or your commandments burdensome, but freeing, Lord, and refreshing to the soul. And I pray that in this act of communion, not only are we remembering, but we are also proclaiming, Lord, that you will return. That you will judge the living and the dead, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.